All right, tonight we are going to tackle another healing uh, performed by Jesus. Simply the paralytics healing is all I'm referring to, referring to it as. It does appear in the three synoptic gospels. And we will begin by reading all three accounts, as I tend to do with this class. We're going to start with Matthew's account. We'll go to Mark's and then Luke's. But if you will, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and let's read Matthew's account of this particular healing, the healing of a paralytic. Matthew chapter 9, it's the first eight verses. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Mark's account can, uh, is present in Mark chapter 2 in the first 12 verses. So let's read Mark's account of this story as well. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic, paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Now let's read Luke's account in Luke chapter 5. It's between verse 17 through 26. You may have noticed that Mark has details that Matthew did not have. Matthew has a much more condensed version of the story. And, and Mark adds in details that weren't present, such as the fact that uh, the paralytic had been lowered through the roof and things like that. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26, the third uh, telling of this story. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through tiles into the midst before Jesus." And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this 
who speaks blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seizes them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Luke's account is, is more similar to Mark's account, and Matthew's kind of is the, the, the more condensed version that's kind of the oddball out because it lacks so many details. But So that's one of the reasons I like to read all the accounts as we spend our time studying, just so you glean those little pieces of information as we move to study. Now, there are two uh, pieces of information I want to start with, and it has to do with where this particular healing is taking place, where this particular miracle is occurring. And the first thing I want you to notice, it's not that hard to see, is that this happened in Capernaum. Uh, both, uh, well, Mark makes reference specifically to the town. He's the only one who specifically identifies what town they're in. And, there, and this is significant because a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time studying about how Capernaum became the uh, base of operation for Jesus. It became the, the place from which he would uh, go out, the place where he would reside, the place that Matthew would even use the language, his own city. So if you look at Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, Capernaum is specifically identified. If you look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1, Capernaum is not specifically mentioned but the place where this is happening is referred to as Jesus's own city. So that gives us an indicator that this was Jesus's home. Now it should be noted at this point that Capernaum has experienced the exorcism of a man at the synagogue, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and what I often refer to as the sunset healings where the whole town brought out all their sick and uh, demon-possessed and had Jesus address them. All that happened prior to this event. So Capernaum was no stranger to Jesus' miracles at this point. But Jesus had left Capernaum because his initial healing ministry was overshadowing his preaching ministry. So if you go back to Mark chapter 1, you look at verses 32 through 34, you find out that Jesus, the morning he wakes up after performing all those miracles at sunset, he said, all right, it's time for us to go on so I can teach in these other towns and villages as well. So he left Capernaum, went about teaching and preaching, and he's come back. So Capernaum's not unfamiliar with the healing that's happening here. Interestingly, the crowds were present on this occasion not specifically because of Jesus's healing. They're here because they want to hear Jesus preaching the word. At least that's the inference we're get, or the, the message we're given in Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, where it says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together, and he was preaching the word to them. They were gathered there where the activity in which he was engaged was preaching. One commentator said it this way, the time the, This time the crowds came not merely to be healed of bodily illnesses or afflictions, but to hear the word of God. That temporary withdrawal by Jesus back in chapter 1 of Mark, and the Galilean preaching tour that's mentioned in chapter 1 
had served their purpose because the wheat had been separated from the chaff among the hearers of Jesus. So Jesus has returned to Capernaum. He's teaching again, and people are there to listen to the word of God from him. And they're specifically gathered in a house. Now, this may not seem like a significant detail, but there's some things that we need to know about this house. In particular, you'll, you'll notice that um, if you look at Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, look, or let me ask it this way, whose house is it? Mark chapter 2 and verse 1 says, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. What does that imply to you as to whose house it was? To me, that says it was Jesus' house. That blows my mind that Jesus had a house. I don't know why. But Jesus had a house. That's interesting because if you look at the uh, New King James translation there of Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, it does not indicate that he possessed this house. It just says the house. Giving the impression it's just a generic house. It could be anybody's house. It may not be Jesus' house, but it's someone's house. But the house, that's a very definitive house. Somehow it was known that whatever house Jesus was at was kind of a standard place that he would be. And it's very interesting because if you go to Mark chapter 1, the house in Capernaum that gets talked about is actually Simon Peter's house. It's where Simon's mother-in-law was when Jesus healed her fever. I bring this up because it may be that Jesus is sharing in Simon's house, that Jesus lives really in Simon and Andrew's house when he's in Capernaum. But there is a sense in which it is his house He's so um, aligned with it, so connected to this particular house. It's so well known that Jesus goes there when he's in Capernaum that it's recognized as his house. Maybe it's actually Simon's. We don't know. Here's why I bring that up. This is a picture of the ruins of Capernaum from above. And you may notice this uh, big uh, octagonal building here. That octagonal building looks like this on the ground. With the, you can see the ruins around it. Uh, this is a uh, memorial of sorts to a particular structure inside the city of Capernaum. If you went inside this disc-shaped building, you would look through a glass floor to this octagonal structure that is claimed to be the house of Simon Peter. Now, that doesn't look like much of a house to you or I. That's because the house is not what you're looking at. You're looking at these octagonal walls. Those are the ruins of a 5th century Byzantine church that was built on the site. And that innermost circle there is said to be constructed on the walls of the largest room in Simon Peter's house. This place has a memorial built over the top of it now. Obviously, this picture was taken before that structure was built on top of it for people to view from above. But this is the claimed site of Peter's house. Now, how do they know it's Peter's house? Okay, well, they really don't. Here's what's fascinating about it is there are underneath these ruins, uh, buried on the ground that you see, are the ruins 
It's of a first century house. That by the time of the third, no, fourth century started to have, to, to get re, rebuilt. But not as a house, as a place of worship. And since the fifth century, there has set a church on top of that house, honoring it as the place of, of Simon Peter's residence. Which means, if it was Simon's residence, and I'm not here to claim that it was, but if it was, then it's quite possible it was actually Jesus' residence too. I, let me share this uh, quote from uh, an, um, a magazine called Biblical Archaeology Review. It's a, a magazine that uh, posts information about archaeological discoveries. And you may be thinking, how do we know this is Peter's house? And this is the answer that is given to that. It says, though there is no definitive proof in this instance that the house ruin uncovered by the excavator, excavators actually is the ancient house of Peter, there is layer upon layer of circumstantial evidence to support its importance in early Christianity and its association with Jesus in Capernaum and his foremost disciple Peter. Were it not for its association with Jesus and Peter, why else would a run-of-the-mill first century house in Capernaum have become a focal point of Christian worship and identity for centuries to come? So I show this to you to give you an idea of what Capernaum would have looked like or, or what the ruins of Capernaum looks like and, and to show you that uh, even a house is significant when it comes to tourism and in, uh, in the promised land. So anyway, just thought it would be interesting to show you that. Here's what I really want you to see. This is a picture of a, a first century Palestinian house. It's not that glamorous. It does have a couple of floors to it usually because you keep your animals in the the bottom floor, and you kind of live up in the top floor. Um, but this would be the interior of a, of a house in first century uh, Palestine. And you can see that the, in the bottom right corner, there is a circle there that is indicating the kind of material the roof would be made out of. Uh, the, the, the walls would be a mud brick clay kind of structure, but the roof would be some sort of thatch work. And uh, Oh, actually, you can see the reference there to a straw-covered roof in Palestine. It's interesting. Luke mentions tile. Now, that was more of a, a Greek uh, architectural component, more so than a Palestinian architectural component. And so it may be that as Luke is writing to a Greek audience in Theophilus, maybe Theophilus doesn't, wouldn't understand the removal of straw, but he understands the removal of a tile because that's how his house would be built. And so it could be that Luke is just uh, using a reference that Theophilus would understand. Meanwhile, if you look at the New American Standard Version of Mark chapter 2, I believe it is, there is reference to the removal of mud in, in, to lower the man through the house. But I want you to see what this house would look like. The other thing you need to notice, this is an artist rendering of what Capernaum would have looked like in the first century. That house I just showed you did not show an exterior staircase, but usually every house had one, kind of like this. So imagine this scenario where Jesus is inside of the house, and these men bring the paralytic. They can't get into the house, so they go up the exterior stairs to the roof. They dig through the straw to make a hole so that they can lower him through. I just wanted you to get a picture of all this. Now, here's the other thing you need to know about a house at this time. They weren't that big. The largest room in a house in the first century could have held up to 
50 people. Or, and I shouldn't say large, a house in the first century could have held up to 50 people. It was not that big. In fact, the, uh, let me find this note here, the largest room excavated from the first century up to today is only 18 feet long. So it's not a huge space. Um, so when, when we try to imagine this house overflowing with people, we, we, we need to think in terms of what a Palestinian house would look like. So you have this house, Jesus is inside, enough people are there to fill it up, and then these guys show up with a paralyzed man laying on a mat. That's the breakdown of how the story sets up. And that part you can pretty much fathom. Now I want to start talking about the details of the story a little bit more. But first I want to draw your attention to this artwork on the side. You, you've probably noticed that I like to throw up ancient artwork related to these biblical stories just, well, because when you start searching for PowerPoints on Jesus healing a leper, they don't really make them. So I, I throw up ancient artwork. This one intrigued me because this looks like a cave painting. This is actually a, a, a mural in the baptistry of a church in Syria from the 3rd century A.D. And the picture, though you may not be able to see it, this figure here is Jesus. This here is a man lying on a mat, and this is a man standing up carrying that mat. It's the oldest artwork of a healing of Jesus in the world. And it's of this story. I found that fascinating. Why this story? Why is this story the one that, that has the oldest piece of art in the world? Intriguing to me. But as we peel this story back, I think you'll start to see its importance in the biography of Jesus. This is a significant event in Jesus' life, and I, I hope to convey that tonight. But I, I just wanted you to, I, I came across this today as I was uh, putting my PowerPoint together and, and discovered that this is the oldest artwork of a healing performed by Jesus in the world. Anyway, let's start talking about what happened at this house. First thing I want you to really pay attention to is the fact that extraordinary measures were taken to get this man to Jesus. I am fascinated by what these four men did to get their friend to Jesus. And isn't it interesting? We're never given the identity of these four men. These four men are completely anonymous. Yet they do something extraordinary. They care so much about getting their friend to Jesus that they'll do anything. Can you imagine, if you're the owner of this house, how angry you would be? Could you imagine being the owner of this house, how frustrated you would be at these four guys? And especially if it, just, if it happens to be the house of Simon Peter, you know he would be set off. Just... These guys care that much that they don't care about destroying property. They're willing to do anything to get their friend to Jesus. They're taking extraordinary measures. And I think there is a lesson for us, evangelistically speaking. Are we willing to take extraordinary measures to get people to Jesus? And, and I'm not telling you, I'm not meaning unethical or, um, or, 
or negative measures. I'm talking about are we willing to go the extra mile to, to, to help connect people to Jesus? Because these guys were, these unnamed guys who we never hear anything about, we don't even know if they became disciples or not. But they're willing to climb on a roof and dig through it to get their friend to Jesus because they care that much. The other thing is, the, the, we never hear really about this man's condition other than that he is paralyzed. That's the only thing we know. We don't know how he got paralyzed. We don't know how long he's been paralyzed. We don't know uh, if, he's, um, uh, if he's paralyzed waist down or neck down or what. We, we don't know the extent of it or anything. But we know it's significant enough that these four guys aren't wasting time. That, that's, that's all we really know about this guy's condition. And they're willing to make sacrifices to getting into the presence of Jesus. So I think it's significant to note that extraordinary measures were taken to get the paralytic to Jesus. I think it's also important to note in this story that this healing occurred because faith was present. Jesus accredited this man's healing to faith. Now, several other times in the Gospels, faith and healing are going to be identified in connection with each other. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 13, when the centurion's servant is healed, there is a reference to his faith being, uh, or there's an attribute, his faith is attributed to his healing, or his healing is attributed to his faith. Uh, the woman with the hemorrhaging issue who touched the corner of Jesus's clothes, same thing. Her healing is attributed to her faith. Um, the, the Canaanite woman's daughter, the, the one who, is, who Jesus initially told, I've got to go to the lost sheep of Israel first, and she says, just give me the crumbs. Again, her daughter's healing attributed to her faith. That boy with the unclean spirit whose father had trouble believing. Jesus talked about the importance of faith in that instance. And in the, the leper colony, when Jesus healed the ten lepers, the one comes back, his healing is attributed to his faith. Same thing with Bartimaeus, who was blind. So you have multiple occasions where Jesus is going to say, your faith has made you well, that sort of thing. This one is unique because whose faith is Jesus commending. Have you ever thought about that? So if you're looking here in Mark chapter 2, we're told that these friends, they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic. This is verse 3. And when they could not get near the house, near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they, lay it, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, verse 5 of Mark 2 says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Whose faith is Jesus saying, is Jesus commending here? Whose faith is he commending? Well, you said the man that brought him, the men that brought him, and at least the four. It's interesting because we know it's plural, their faith, it's plural. So it's more than just one individual. And the, 
the actions, if we, if we go with the mentality of, of James chapter 2 where he talks about faith without works is dead, if your faith is evidenced by your actions, then whose actions are commendable here? It's, it's, it's these four friends. Because as far as we know, Paralytic's not doing anything. But we shouldn't exclude him as someone whose faith is being commended. Maybe he asked his friends to take him to Jesus. Before this story unfolds, maybe he hears Jesus is in town, Jesus is at this house, and, and, and he's asking these guys, hey, will you carry me to Jesus? Because he healed all those people the last time he was here. Maybe he can heal me. So when we look at this and hear, hear that Jesus is commending their faith, certainly it includes the men who lowered the man through the roof, but it may also include the man who's going to be forgiven here. In fact, I think it has to. Because how could Jesus pronounce forgiveness of this man's sins if this man didn't have faith? I, I think you have to include him in addition to the four who lowered him through the roof. But it's very fascinating because in this moment, the faith we see is the faith of these four men, not the faith of the man who's going to be healed. But the healing occurred because, of faith, because faith was present nonetheless. The other thing that stands out about this particular healing is that forgiveness of sins preceded physical healing. This is one of only two times, one of only two times that Jesus specifically said, your sins are forgiven. Does anybody know when the other time Jesus said that to somebody was? Nope. To the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, by implication, his sins were forgiven. But he didn't say your sins are forgiven. No, he said, go and sin no more. Because when I was studying this, I was like, oh, I'm going to list all the times that Jesus said this. And I went to the thief on the cross. I went to the woman caught in adultery. The only other time that I found that Jesus specifically said, your sins are forgiven, is in Luke chapter 7, verse 38, with the woman who washed his feet. Now, as has been mentioned by these two examples, there are other times where you can tell that that's what Jesus is ultimately saying. The woman caught in adultery, he obviously forgave her and then told her, sin no more. The thief on the cross, he obviously forgave the sins of that individual because today you will be with me in paradise. But this is one of only two times that Jesus specifically said to someone, your sins are forgiven. And it's also significant that when you look at, particularly at Mark's gospel, it's not claiming that Jesus said, I forgive your sins. The statement is, your sins have been forgiven, as in, your sins have been forgiven by God. But, these religious leaders who are present, they obviously understood the implication of what Jesus is saying as a claim to be able to forgive sins. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Why did Jesus forgive first? These guys bring this paralytic to Jesus for Jesus to heal him. They didn't come and ask for sins to be forgiven. 
They came for legs to work again, for a body to function again, for this guy to be able to walk again. They didn't come for sins. So why did Jesus forgive? We we don't even have an indication of repentance here. We don't even have a confession of sins here. Well, I think there are two significant things happening. One is that in that day and age, sin and sickness were linked together. I made mention of this um, in, in my sermon on Sunday, but you can go over to John, John chapter 9, the man born blind. In that story, we have this, uh, this question asked by Jesus' own followers. Who sinned to cause this man to be born blind? There was a belief in the Jewish culture of the first century that if you had an illness, a, a, a disability, a medical dilemma, it's because there was sin in your life. And I'm certain that the, the religious leaders who are present when Jesus is teaching here in Capernaum, they're thinking the same thing. There was a, an oral teaching in that day that said, A sick man does not recover from his sickness until all his sins are forgiven him. And certainly that kind of teaching is reflected in the life of Job, whose friends were adamant that his ill fortunes were the, issue, were, were the, excuse me, the result of some sin in his life. They were trying to get him to repent of some, sort of, of some sin because the evidence in his life said that that had to be the issue, despite the fact that he clung to his innocence. So sin and sickness are linked in that culture. And Jesus may be trying to address that in some capacity through this healing. Because while sin and sickness were linked, so were forgiveness and healing. Sometimes they're treated almost interchangeably in Scripture. And it is possible that the man's sickness was in fact, or his, his disability, his paralysis was in fact the direct result of sin sometimes that's the case there sometimes there are consequences we suffer physically because of our sin you know after healing a different paralytic one in jerusalem in john chapter 5 jesus warned him to sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you John chapter 5, verse 14. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now we hear that and we automatically conclude, oh, he must be referring to eternal punishment in hell. That, that, that would be the nothing worse happening to you. But, but, but what if there's an underlying indication that there is some sort of, uh, uh, of maladies that is the result of sin? That, this, that it was a consequence of sin. You can even think about James chapter 5, where you have James declare, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Even in James chapter 5, where we're given this beautiful statement about praying for one another, uh, to pray for the, the healing of one another when we're sick, 
there is this linkage to the presence of sin as well. So when you think about James chapter 5, it's a passage that seems to indicate that, the, that in the Bible, sickness and other kinds of suffering sometimes result from sin. So maybe Jesus is addressing this because there, there was, in fact, sin that bore out consequences in, in the life of this man that resulted in his paralysis. Or maybe he's just trying to address in some capacity the mentality of the day that sin and sickness were linked. But the ultimate reason he forgave first is to prove that he had the authority to forgive sins. In fact, Jesus specifically stated in Mark chapter 2 and verse 10 and Luke chapter 5 and verse 24 that he forgave first so that the scribes and Pharisees, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Of the, of the two acts involved here, forgiveness and healing, it was easier to say your sins are forgiven than rise and walk. Because the latter of those two, the rise and walk statement, is the one that we be, could be put to an immediate and obvious test. You can't test whether or not sins were actually forgiven. And so for Jesus... By forgiving sins first and then healing the man and that being demonstrated, it's affirming, it's confirming that he could forgive sins. And that's going to blow the minds of his opposition this day. And that's where I want to take this for our next part is I want us to notice who took offense to what he said and did and why they took offense to it. The emphasis is on two categories of religious leaders, Pharisees and teachers of the law. Teachers of the law will sometimes be referred to as scribes in Scripture, but these two groups are the ones that are present. Now, the, the, you need to understand a few things about these two groups. The Pharisees were the most influential of the three major Jewish sects of that day. You have the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Pharisees were the political conservatives. They were the ones who were, were not in the majority, but they were the most respected among the people because they took the law seriously. I mean, they're the ones who, who would actually count out how many pieces of herb they have so they could tithe the correct amount. They were very legalistic, and that's what the people of the day thought religion was. And so they really respected Pharisees. The Pharisees were known for building um, rules to keep them from breaking laws. So you may have heard this example before, but there's the the law that says you shall not take the, Lord, the, the name of the Lord in vain, and they made sure they did not break it by refusing to pronounce his name at all. That was kind of their, their, their operating mindset is we'll find ways to prevent ourselves from even getting close to breaking the law. And so the Pharisees are held in high esteem. They're uh, a, a Jewish sect that has great influence. In addition to the Sometimes a Pharisee could also be a scribe. The scribes were the well-educated men, the, the ones who 
uh, knew the law. They were learned in the law. And so they were the, the men of theological acumen. They uh, would be the teachers of the law because they knew the law the best, so they could educate others on the law. And they functioned as representatives of the official religion of Israel. They were kind of the experts of the day. So you, one could be a teacher of the law and not a Pharisee, but most were Pharisees. Here's why. Because the Pharisees took the law so strictly, rigidly, and seriously. The Sadducees would be a little bit looser in their interpretation of the law, and so most scribes, most teachers of the law, aligned with the Pharisees because they took the law so seriously. And so you can see a reference to um, the association of, of being both scribe and Pharisee. You can see that association in a passage like Acts chapter 23 and verse 9 where reference is made to some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party. And that passage is trying to note doctrinal differences between Pharisees and Sadducees. So here's the point. You've got these significant authoritative figures in the Israelite faith present when Jesus is teaching. And it's interesting because Luke tells us, Luke gives us this detail about the scribes and the Pharisees at this moment. That the, He says in verse 17 of Luke 5 that they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. There are these religious leaders from every town around Capernaum, but even some from as far away as Jerusalem who have come up almost investigative-like. One commentator suggests that these scribes were not the uh, local synagogue officials, but a fact-finding commission of the type that had already cross-questioned John the Baptist. So Jesus has, in a very short period of time, caught the attention of the religious leaders of the day. Remember, he always went into synagogues to teach. That was his... his uh, Otis operandi, if you will. And that's where the scribes and the Pharisees would have their greatest authority, inside the synagogue. But Jesus has so shaken things up by this point that they're coming out to hear him. They're going to be challenging him. They're going to be questioning him and eventually going to be plotting against him. Now, that's who takes offense, but why did they take offense? to what Jesus does here. Shouldn't there be a celebration at sins being forgiven? Well, here's the problem they had with Jesus pronouncing forgiveness. They viewed it as a blasphemous act. We're told in Mark chapter 2 and verse 7 that the scribes were told what they were thinking. And here's what they were thinking. They're thinking, He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, blasphemy is defined as irreverent, profane, or impious speech about God. In other words, blasphemy occurs when one denies God's existence, but it can also occur when one demeans his sovereign position. And one way you demean God is by equating yourself to God, because you are so much inferior, so mortal, so sinful, 
so insignificant that to compare yourself to God just brings God down. doesn't elevate you. It brings God down. And so for them to hear Jesus forgive sins, which to, they believe is a prerogative belonging only to God, and they are right, they just don't accept that Jesus is God in the flesh, they then view him as blaspheming. So the problem here is that Jesus is claiming to have done something that God alone can do. And they're not accepting him as God. And so as one commentator said, if Jesus were not divine, then he was indeed a blasphemer. But because he is divine, he's not. This is not the only time the accusation of blasphemy would be leveled against Jesus. He would be accused of it for his temple teachings during the Feast of Dedication when he would say, I and the Father are one. That comes from John chapter 10. But there are other occasions too. Blasphemy would be the basis for the plot against his life that starts in John chapter 5 and verse 18, as well as the execution-worthy accusation that led to his guilty verdict at his trials and you can see that in Mark chapter 14, verse 64. So blasphemy becomes the ultimate issue that Jesus is going to be targeted for. When he is executed, when he is martyred, in his Jewish trials, when he stands before the Sanhedrin and the high priest condemns him, it's for blasphemy. They can't get any other accusation to stick, but they make that one stick but only because they don't believe him to be the Son of God. With that, I want us to think for just a moment about what is so significant about this healing. Remember, I told you about this painting, the oldest painting, oldest artwork of any of Jesus' healing miracles. And it's in the baptistry of a third century church in Syria. I'm fascinated that it's in a baptistry. Because when I... Now, we're Church of Christ. We've grown up with some interesting baptistry artwork, haven't we? Any of y'all attended a, a good old Church of Christ that had a beautiful Jordan River scene back there? Or, or, or something like that? It's always fun when they get outdated, isn't it? And the paint begins to fade. This was in a baptistry. Why the healing of a paralytic? It has nothing to do with baptism, but it does have something to do with forgiveness of sins, right? This is one, of, if you go by the chronology of Mark's gospel or even Luke's gospel, this is the first time, I believe, that Jesus pronounces forgiveness to someone. And it's in the waters of baptism that we find that forgiveness. That makes this story pretty significant. I think it's also significant for these two reasons that I want to share with you. The first of which is that this healing marks the beginning of Jesus' conflict with religious leaders. Go to Luke's gospel with me for just a moment, to Luke chapter um, 5 where this account appears. And what we have happen 
is we're going to have a series of five stories in a row, starting with this one, where Jesus has conflict with his opposition. So if you look at Luke chapter 5, you'll, you'll see this, this particular account appear uh, in verses 17 through uh, 26. And you see that, that conflict arise with the uh, Pharisees and the scribes. They don't say anything, but Jesus can read their hearts and he knows what they're thinking. And they're, 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 they're saying to themselves that he's a blasphemer. In the story that immediately follows this, in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, you have the calling of Levi, or the calling of Matthew. And here's this tax collector that's going to become a follower of Christ, an eventual apostle. And after Levi, or Matthew, becomes a follower, leaves his tax booth to follow Jesus, he invites Jesus to his house and he throws a dinner for all his tax collecting buddies to meet Jesus. And if you look at that story, you look particularly down at verse 30 of Matthew chapter 5. You read that the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Their first issue is with the paralytic. How can this guy be uh, blaspheming like this? Who can forgive sins but God? Now, how can this guy eat with tax collectors and sinners? The very next story in Luke chapter 5, it starts at verse 33, it ends with the end of the chapter, and it's this question that arises about fasting. And, and verse 33 immediately follows the, uh, Jesus eating with the, uh, in Levi's house. In verse 33, they said to him, they must be a reference back to the Pharisees and the scribes, him a reference back to Jesus. So the Pharisees and the scribes said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. They come with another issue. Your disciples don't do this. Ours do. What's up? It's their third criticism of Jesus presented in a question form. Now you skip over to chapter 6 of Luke. Luke chapter 6, the first Five verses are about this incident on the Sabbath day where Jesus and his disciples are working for, through a grain field and his disciples plucked a few pieces of grain to have a little snack. And in verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, why are, what, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They take issue with the, Jesus again. It's another conflict between Jesus and these these religious leaders who are becoming his opponents. And then if you skip down to verses 6 through 11, a fifth story, the fifth story in a row, this is on another Sabbath day, we're told in verse 6. He goes into the synagogue, he's teaching, a man with a withered hand shows up, he heals that man, it's on a Sabbath day. And what happens? You look at verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees are there, and now notice, they're there watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now they're staking him out, trying to entrap him. you got five stories in a row. Mark has the exact same five stories in a row. And every story has a conflict that arises between Jesus and these opponents because this is the start of his great opposition from them. These are the guys who are eventually going to orchestrate his murder. And this is the start of it. It started with him healing this paralytic. And look at Luke's chapter 6, uh, verse 11. 
after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Their plotting starts this early. And if you actually go to Mark's account in in Mark chapter 3, and you look at verse 6, Mark says it this way. After the healing of the man with the withered hand, Mark says, Mark 3 verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's pretty intense language. They went out and started having meetings on how to destroy Jesus. That's the language we use for college football games. And that's the language they're using for taking Jesus out of the picture. And notice they meet with the Herodians. We don't know much about the Herodians. They're not mentioned very often. But they were apparently a, an unofficial political group of Jews who supported the Herodian dynasty, which means they were supporters of Herod Antipas in Galilee in particular and his reign. And to be a supporter of the Herodian dynasty, you had to be a supporter of Rome because Rome put the, the, the Herodian dynasty in place. And so if you're a Herodian, then you're okay with Roman occupation. And you're okay with Herod Antipas being the ruler of Galilee. And you're okay with the policies that are in place. The Pharisees were vehemently opposed to Rome. They wanted Rome out of Israel. They, they wanted to have themselves empowered again under God. And so this is, the, this is, the, this is a situation where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the Pharisees so want to take Jesus out that they're going to cooperate with a group that they can't stand in order to accomplish that. And they're, going, they're, they're filled with fury, Luke chapter 5 says, and they want to destroy Jesus, or Luke chapter 6 says, and they want to destroy Jesus, Mark chapter 2 says. That's, and this all starts because of this event, healing the paralytic. The other thing that I think is significant about this story is that it marks the beginning of Jesus' public revelation of his identity. We've read some other events that miracles Jesus has performed, healings Jesus has performed. Think about the wedding at Cana. My time has not yet come. He wasn't ready for his identity to be revealed. And the only people that knew what he did were the servants there and his own disciples and his mother. You think about the healing of the leper that we talked about last week. He heals this leper, but then he tells that leper, don't tell anybody. The leper totally ignored that instruction, but Jesus is still trying to keep it quiet. But at this healing, he's revealing himself. When he forgives sins, he is intentionally associating himself with God. And it's worth noting, he uses a particular title in reference to himself. Son of Man. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us all the time. But that is a title that is pulled from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It's a title that refers to the one whom the Ancient of Days gave dominion and glory and a kingdom to. A kingdom that would not pass away, that would not be destroyed. And that title, Son of Man, that came from Daniel chapter 7 in reference to the Messiah, was Jesus' favorite self-designation. He used it in the Gospels, or at least in the Gospels, it is used over 80 times. 
And it appears to be Jesus' way of referring to his Messiahship with the use of a term which would not arouse the wrong accusation in people's minds. It's the more subtle way of saying, I'm the Messiah, without saying, I'm the Messiah. But here, by forgiving sins in the manner that only God can do, and by using a prophetic title, Jesus is now public with his identity. It's no longer a secret it's no longer something that he's kind of keeping, uh, keeping under, under wraps. It's no longer uh, a secret. It's out in the open. And so this healing of the paralytic is significant because it's the start of his opposition and it's the start of his announcement of who I am. And so when I learned about this artwork in this baptistry and that it's the oldest piece of artwork of a, of a healing of Jesus, it made me appreciate all the more this particular story and the significance it plays in his life. And it might be a story we overlook a little too much. Oh, it's a great story for kids' classes because we can construct a little house and make the little guy go through the roof and it's a little toy we can play with as we teach the kids. It's really good on felt board, right? Man, we need to bring back felt. But it's a significant story because it's the first time that Jesus is going to pronounce forgiveness to somebody. It's a significant story because it's going to mark the beginning of his opposition, and it's a significant story because it marks the beginning of his identification as the Messiah. So I hope you can appreciate this story in a new way tonight. Let's close out with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sharing the life of your Son with us and giving and, and, and us your word so that we can look back on it, we can, we can examine it, and we can learn from it, and we can find new things every time we open the pages of your word. May you bless us with what we've learned tonight. Uh, may we have a greater appreciation for your son, and may we strive to live like him more tomorrow than we did today. And Lord, we, we, ask, we ask humbly for your blessings on us as we go through the rest of this week, and may we represent you to the best of our ability. Lord, we love you, and it is through the name of Jesus Christ that we offer this prayer.